This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. CJ Tudor, welcome to Better Reading. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, CJ's in England. Uh, she's from the south. Where did you say you were exactly? We're in East Sussex in the south of the UK. Originally, I'm from Wiltshire. Then I lived in Nottingham in the Midlands for a long while. Yeah. And then we moved back here a couple of years ago to be close to family for babysitting, really. Yes, because <laughs> you've got a little one, right? Yeah. Uh, that's handy. I'm all for being raised by the village. I've got lots of nieces and nephews. They're looked after by many. And it's a really nice way to raise kids, actually. It is nice to have it's nice for her to have family close by because when we were when we previously lived in Nottingham, we lived for a long while. We didn't have any family. So we were constantly trekking, you know, back and forth to sort of see them. And you know, it's just it's just nice to be closer, really, for her to mm. see her grandma and grandpa and auntie and uncle and stuff, you know, more often. Not that we can see them that much at the moment because we're in lockdown. But... You poor things. It's been going on <laughs> for so long. Oh. Um, particularly in Sydney. I mean, it's feeling very normal. Of course, you know, we're all completely aware of it and people are wearing masks where they can. But, you know, I'm swimming every day. We're walking. Uh, a lot of us are going into the office. Not all of us. Um, so it's starting to feel, I mean, I think we haven't had a communicate community case for over two weeks now and when we did it was only about two or three that's brilliant and we're still I mean you know UK has not Mm. not been great it's not been handled wonderfully you know I think all hopes being pinned on the vaccination program really at the moment to sort of see a way out of it it's weird I think as we're in the countryside we're quite rural you don't see that many people anyway so (laughs) in a way it's easier to kind of forget it's all going on and then you sort of go out to the you know, a town or the shops or yes. stuff, and you kind of, you know, remember again. But, you know, because and also because me and my husband work from home, aside from our little girl being homeschooled at the moment, in some ways life isn't that much different. different. Yeah, and I guess for writers life isn't that much different because you've pretty much well, always worked from home. Yeah, that's the way I work at home. I sit at my desk, I write. Yeah. You know, aside from doing the homeschooling alongside at the moment, which can be, you know, challenging <laughs> so day to day it's not as different I think as it, as it is for some people and we're quite lucky in that respect absolutely so CJ is the author of The Other People The Hiding Place and The Chalk Man which won the International Thriller Writers Award for the Best First Novel and the Strand Magazine Award for Best Debut Novel over the years she has worked as a copywriter voiceover artist and dog walker that's when you won me over with a dog walker <laughs> <laughs> She was even a TV presenter for a show called Movie Watch, where she interviewed acting legends such as Sigourney Weaver, Michael Douglas, Emma Thompson and Robin Williams. She is now thrilled to write full time, which is really a a big deal for a writer, isn't it? 
Uh, her latest novel is The Burning Girls, an explosive, unsettling thriller about an unconventional vicar who moves to a remote corner of the English countryside. So it's been read by a couple of people in our team. And Jane, one of our best readers, told me to tell you that she loved it. I think oh, she had to leave it out in the car, though, after she finished it. She didn't <laughs> want it to be in the house. <laughs> Put it in the fridge. <laughs> so she said, can you please tell CJ that? Oh, mate, that, that's, that's it. That was a compliment. <laughs> it's a compliment, right? You know you've done a good job as a thriller writer. Well, she can't fall asleep with the book in the house. She had to go the anyway, there you go. We take things very seriously at the uh, Better Reading Office, and if you can't, <laughs> If you can't deal with the thriller book, get rid of it. Okay, so tell me, I mean, it is such a, a varied career in a way. I mean, copywriting, writing, yes, they're the same, but there's lots of things there. So first thing yes. I want to know, when you were little, did you want to be a writer? Where did you grow up and where did the love of writing come from? I think I did always want to be a writer. I mean, I think the love of writing always comes from a love of reading, doesn't it? Yes. Um, and I loved reading from a really early age. And because I'm, you know, an old, an old fart, there wasn't really much else to do. There wasn't, you know, sort of iPads or computer games or much telly. So reading was, you know, was the thing. That was the escape from reality. Um, and I, you know, I started reading. I was, I was quite ahead, you know, in reading. Um, and I started writing little stories myself quite early on, I think. I remember writing little stories about an elf who went on adventures when I was only about sort of five or six, I think. But I mean, quite quickly, and I don't know why, really, I started getting into sort of like creepy books and ghost stories. I used to read like Hamlin's Book of Horror, Hamlin's Book of True Ghost Stories, those big compilation books you used to get. I used to give myself terrible nightmares when I was probably about eight or nine from reading these creepy stories. But something about it always really attracted me. Um, and Were your parents quickly, worried about what you were reading? I do you know, I don't think they were really. I think they just were like they were sort of like you know, there's what she enjoys reading. You know, I mean, I think I think I started like a lot of kids. I read a lot of Enid Blyton when I was yeah. quite young, and then I sort of moved on to things like Agatha Christie as well, and then these sort of creepy ghost stories, kind of in between. Um, but I think they were sort of quite happy that I was just reading. They knew I loved reading, and I was an only child as well, so it kind of kept me quiet and it kept me out of the way. <laughs> I wasn't pestering them for anything if I was reading. Um, and it was kind of my escape, I suppose. And then I think when I was about 11 or 12, I used to, my dad used to let me have his library card so I could get adult books from the library because I'd kind of grown out of the kids' section by then. And there wasn't YA. There wasn't YA back when I was a kid. You, you know, we my- often talk about that. Yeah, because yeah. I was working as a bookseller at the time, you know, all those years ago, and there was no YA section at all. No. YA has completely come from demand, you know, because yeah. that genre didn't exist. And, you know, I remember when um, people used to come in and it was like Flowers in the Attic, Stephen King, uh, those sorts yeah. of things that you, those sorts of books that you would recommend uh, to people yeah. um, really at 12, 13, 14, because there wasn't anything in between. No, and it wasn't. Then those are the books that I read. I remember reading you know, Flowers in the Attic and I remember Stephen King. That was my introduction to Stephen King. I think Christine was the first Stephen King that I read that I got from the library. And then that was it for me. I was just completely a fan. You know, I was I, I searched out all his other books and then that kind of introduced me to other horror books as well. I mean, and horror, of course, was big in the 80s. You know, it was a big genre then, I think, yes. you know, because it kind of fell out of favour for a while. But in the 80s, you know, those were the big, you know, the big 
gory kind of covers you saw in the bookshops. And I think as a teenager as well, there's something quite attractive about that. It's like, oh, it's sort of like almost forbidden uh, reading this horror. And so, yeah, I was like totally into horror. So I was read Stephen King and Dean Koontz and James Herbert and Clive Barker. And, you know, those are sort of my, my touchstones and my inspiration, really. And I guess that sort of sparked what I wanted to write, really. Would you let your daughter read what you were reading at that age? I don't know. Yeah, probably. I think, I mean, she's quite, I think kids are quite macabre sometimes. But, you know, sadly, she's not as into reading as I was. Already I can see she's, you know, maybe that will change as she gets older. I don't think you can force it with kids. I think either you love reading or you don't. Um, And, of course, there's more distractions. So she's very much at the moment, I'd say she's very much a gamer at the moment. She loves, like, like playing Minecraft and stuff like that. She likes building as well. She loves Lego and stuff. So her mind is very much in that direction. So she does read really well. She's a good reader, but it's not something she turns to as much. So we shall sort of see as she gets older. But, I mean, she does quite like, like, watching creepy things and macabre things already. So, you know, I think... Runs in the family. (laughs) (laughs) So then in high school, were you still reading or did you walk away from reading and were you writing? I loved loved writing and I was still reading in high school. I had this wonderful English teacher who really encouraged me. Like he Mm. he knew the sort of stuff I like to read. He'd bring me like books, like classic ghost stories and things like The Turn of the Screw and The Woman in Black. Um, It's really sort of just fed you know, my desire to sort of read creepy stuff and, and write creepy stuff. He once wrote on one of my essays, if you do not become prime minister or a best-selling author, I will be very disappointed. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Well, you've it achieved took a long time. one, right? Okay. I think I was 15 or 16 then, and I, I finally got published when I was 46. Fortunately, I have no political ambitions. But, yeah, it took me a long time to get published, I think. that, And I always wanted to write, but then life gets in the way, doesn't it? And you have to have a day job. You know, it's not something you, unless you're incredibly fortunate and, you know, you perhaps have a lot of money behind you or, you know, someone who can support you. You can't just go, I'm going to be a writer. You have to, you know, you have to have a day job to support you while you do it. And, you know, I had sort of jobs that were to do with writing, like copywriting, and I worked in radio, writing radio commercials. But but that desire to sort of write fiction, I think, was always was always there. But, you know, life, as it does for a lot of people, life got in the way. And I didn't really knuckle down, I don't think, to finish something until I was in my probably early to mid-30s. So you were writing, though. I mean, were you? Yeah, I I was a great starter. I never finished anything. I'd, like, start stuff and then, like, have a better idea. And so I had lots of half-completed things hanging around. But we call that practice, right? Yes, exactly. I was honing my craft. (laughs) That's right. right. So you had, I mean, quite an interesting career. So copywriters, tell me about your interviewing stint. I mean, because there's... Yeah, I mean, I kind of fell into that. There was a show called Movie Watch. And um, what the basic premise was, it had a couple of presenters, but then it used to invite members of the public on to review films. And you'd like, you know, you'd review it and give it a score and stuff. And, And they came to where I was you know, where I was working and they, I, I was one of the members of the public they invited on. Um, and then like a few months later, they were looking for a new co-presenter and, and they, they seemed to like me and asked me if I wanted to do it. And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> why not? Why not? You know, you, Give it a go. Um, you got flown to America and I, mean, I, I saw some, I, mean, I went to New York, I went to LA several times, went to India, Vegas while doing the programme. Um, so it was a great experience, you know, to get flown to places. And you did like the press junkets where you did interviews. But it was it was strange. I mean, it was an experience. Some of it was really enjoyable. Some of it was, you know, not so enjoyable as with everything. Mm. Uh, but I never really wanted to do TV. I was not really interested in being a TV presenter, but it just seemed too good an opportunity to turn down, mm. you know. And, you know, I did, I got to meet some, you know, really cool people. And mostly they were really lovely. 
meeting Robin Williams was, you know, he was one of my heroes and he was amazing. He was so lovely. And it was, it was really cool. Yeah. But when those press junkets are weird things, I mean, they basically wheel you in for five minutes and wheel you out again. And, you know, but it's, it was good, but there were, there were some ups and downs. I remember like the questions because it was kind of a youth orientated kind of movie show. They didn't want you to ask boring questions. So they kind of like find these really weird questions for you to ask them. So you weren't asking the same thing all the time, which was fine because most of the time, you know, I think they're quite bored of being asked the same thing and, and having something different was generally quite amusing. But then, you know, it could go badly wrong because I remember I had to interview Tim Robbins and they sent me off with this list of having not wow, seen the film. Wow, scary, yeah. Well, I was a big and fan. Having anyway. not seen the film? I haven't seen the film. None Which of the, the film? production crew have seen Which the film. One? And it was filmed Dead Man Walking. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> he directed Susan Sarandon and yes. Sean Penn. So it was a deadly serious film. Deadly serious. With all these really light-hearted, <gasps> verging on like rude, cheeky questions. And so I got there late at night and I was jet lagged because of course it was time was way ahead. And I saw the film and I was like, God, you know what? I'm not sure these questions are really very appropriate. But it was the middle of the night back in the UK, and I had the interview first thing in the morning. And I'd I was always told not to change the questions not to chicken out asking the questions. I had to ask the questions they gave me. I was like, what do I do? Do I change the questions? I can't speak to anybody. I'm going to have to plow ahead with these questions. And, and so I did. And it was the most mortifying thing in the world. They were just, it was not appropriate at all. To the point the publicists wouldn't actually let me have the interview tape at the end of oh, it. Wow. I had to go back without an interview. It was it was mortifying. It was it was absolutely dreadful. Too young to swing it to think. Okay, I'm I you know in hindsight you go I really should change those questions, but I think I was quite young and yes. didn't really know what I was doing. So that was that was mortifying. How but then long was, were the interviews? How how long were they were there? about? You literally would have about five minutes with yeah wow with movie stars. But I also got to interview Robert Downey Jr. as well, and that was good because he was quite nuts at the yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember for some reason he showed me his chest and then invited me outside for a cigarette. Uh, I can't remember the context of it all now. It was all a bit strange. You know, one of those where you're like, I don't know really what's going on here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. And was there, somebody, <laughs> was there somebody that really impressed you where you're expecting it not to be so great and it was great? Most, I mean, lots of people you sort of went in, you were prepared to be quite intimidated. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Robin Williams was was absolutely lovely, as I kind of hoped he would be, because he was a big hero. He was, you know, funny, but he was kind. Yes. He was really nice um, and generous. You know, because some you could tell they, they're just doing the job, but, you know, you felt he was, he sort of made an effort. Pierce Brosnan was lovely and absolutely charming, kind of as you would expect him to be. I remember, yeah, most people were nice. I think I'm trying to think. Was Sigourney Weaver, I was really terrified of interviewing mm. because I don't know. I, I, I just thought she might be quite fierce, but she again, but she was actually just so nice and had a real sense of humour. And I think perhaps that was unexpected because I thought she might be quite intimidating, but actually she was incredibly kind and generous. So I think mostly they sort of, maybe they, they knew that I didn't know what I was doing and they kind of took pity on me. <laughs> so here you are, first and foremost to you at the moment, that here you are talking to me and the shoe is on the other foot, so to speak, isn't it? I know. It's weird. I, think, I think it's harder asking the questions, actually. Do you? I think it's always harder being the interviewer. Yes. Yeah. I think because when, when you're being asked the questions, you just ramble on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, or not. I've had some. Or not. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I'm a rambler. But was it unusual? Like, tell me about the first time you were sitting in the seat of the author and you were being asked questions. Did you think about your past experience and, and did that make you a bet, better at it, if you like? 
Um, I don't know, actually. I mean, I think the thing was, I always said to people, one of the things they asked me when I was, you know, getting signed up by the, the agent and meeting the publishers was like, you know, how do you feel about sort of, you know, going to events and talking about your books and things like that? Because a lot of authors are quite shy. I think we are, oh, we do are. have reserved side. That's why we do what we do. And I remember saying, look, you know, I've been trying to get published for over 10 years and nobody wanted to hear about my writing. <laughs> I am happy to talk about my writing. Yeah. And I think, I think you're talking about the books, aren't you, a lot of the time? If you're enthusiastic about books and your writing and what you do, then it's kind of fine, really. And, and you know, most people ask sort of nice questions and stuff and aren't horrible. So it's, you know, there was no one saying, I hated your book. You're so awful. <laughs> that doesn't happen. I mean, we tend not to talk about a book if we didn't like it a lot. But, you know, I, I often think there's a book for everyone. You know, it's so subjective. But I think also, too, we've been lucky in the past few years having a longer format discussion like podcasts where I've really enjoyed it because you get a lot more value out of it it's not the five minutes it's you do get insights and even to you know like we spoke to Matthew McConaughey recently an actor yeah it was really brilliant conversation 45 minutes and you get more value in terms of understanding who the person is don't you you seem so cool I really like Matthew McConaughey just just seems one of those very all interesting characters. So it's that longer format that I think, you know, with five minutes, it's like, you know, it's so quick that nobody gets to relax. Whereas if you've yeah, got exactly. a you don't get actually anything in depth, you just kind of get pre-rehearsed answers a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. So then tell me about when it was the moment that you decided, okay, that's it. I'm going to write a book. Or had you been writing and one stood out and you thought maybe this is the book? I'd had lots of full starts. I, I did, you know, it took me a long time to finish something. Mm. My first thing was I have to finish something. And I did, and that was awful. I never did anything with it. Um, and then maybe was it the next book I caught the attention of an agent? Because I, I got signed by an agent in my mid-30s. It was about my second or my third book I'd attempted to write. But it didn't work out. And, and you always tend to think when you get an agent, that's it. This is it. I'm going to be published. It's all going to be wonderful. But that wasn't the case for me because... There was a lot of work to be done on the book, I think. And, and very much, they were a brilliant a brilliant agents. They represent some amazing authors. But they tend to represent authors that write what I call sort of straight crime, more crime procedural, straight psychological thrillers. Whereas mine have that kind of creepy edge of supernatural, slightly weird stuff going on. So they kept trying to strip that out of the books. And I kept wanting to put it back in. And we kept wrestling kind of back and forth. And, and eventually, after sort of two years, and not even getting a sniff of a publisher, and being quite unhappy because I think I wasn't writing what I wanted to write. I was trying to write for someone else and that's you, can, you can't do that. I sort of took a deep breath and sort of said, I don't think this is working um, and I'm going to leave. And then, that's then, a big that's, call. That's it a was, big call, yeah. It was a big call because it's hard getting an agent and to throw myself back into the slush pile. I was As soon as I'd done it, I was like, this, is this a really stupid thing to do? But I just it was a sense of relief actually because I wasn't, happy and I just thought you know I'd rather not I'd just rather write for me than than try and write something I don't love it, it, it you know it, it this feels like it's a job and I don't want it to feel like it's a it's a job I'm not kind of being true to myself and I know that sounds a little bit arty farty and and but it, it was you know it, I don't you can write stuff you don't love I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, you know, I, I took myself away and I kept writing and I got, wrote some short stories and got those published in some magazines and made a bit of extra cash on the side from that. And then my daughter came along. So <laughs> That's then a distraction. I got, that was a distraction because I'm quite late to everything. So I was 41 then. So this was a few years after I'd left the agent. And I did think then, you know, I'm going to have no time. The writing will have to just go on the back burner. And you know what? Maybe this isn't going to happen for me. But funnily enough, if I hadn't had my daughter, the idea for The Chalk Man, the book that eventually was my, my debut, wouldn't have happened because on her second birthday, some friends gave her a box of coloured chalks and she wanted to go and draw stick figures we drew on the, you know, as you do with coloured shorts we went and drew on the driveway and we covered it in these stick figures and then I went in and forgot about them but when I went out later that night opened the back door to let the dog out and the security light came on and it illuminated all these these stick figures on the driveway and they just looked really creepy in the dark really like they just appeared out of nowhere and I said to my husband these stick men look these chalk men look really creepy in the dark and that was the, the ping the light bulb moment for the chalk man it just seemed like the idea of this childhood game and drawing these stick figures sort of that takes a sinister turn. I just started writing it the next day. So that was kind of the light bulb moment. And I wrote the chalk man and I liked it. And I thought it was, you know, I enjoyed writing it. And I thought, you know, it was, it was, there was something there, but I've been, I've been rejected so often by that point that even when I sent it off, I was still half expecting to be rejected. And as it was the agent that I wanted to take me on did take me on. And then, but then at each stage, I kept thinking that I wouldn't get published because we did more work on the book, et cetera, et cetera. Then I remember she was saying she was going to submit it to publishers, still thinking, yeah, I bet, I bet they reject it type of thing. And then instead, I think within about 48 hours, I think it was submitted on a Friday and we had a preemptive offer on the Monday, quickly followed by more. And then it went to auction, which is kind of like sort of the dream. But it was such a surreal week from like being kind of, unpublishable for so long to have a book like going to auction with lots of publishers um, and then selling to lots of other countries as well it was it was insane but it was literally the sort of the dream come true yeah and sometimes that happens and the book doesn't go on to sell that well but yours did you know I know it did fortunately because yeah you can you can have all that that lovely sort of hype people blowing smoke up your bum and, and it still doesn't sell which I think is you know you have to be realistic with with things every step of the way because although that actually was an amazing experience getting signed and everything else and and it did literally change my life because I say I was working as a dog walker at the time and I had a dog walking business and I was looking after my little girl and time and money were both tight you know we, we didn't have much time didn't have much money and so it was life-changing to get those publishing deals and to be able to write full-time but getting published is one thing and then staying published I think is the harder thing 
you've got to be able to deliver and then you've got to be able to deliver books and books can get a lot of hype and then go on not to sell and that's you know you you realize sorry to interrupt but I was just going to say because readers they're not fickle but they know what they like what they don't like and they know what the expectation is and you really have to connect with the readers and sometimes I think that's just like mind reading isn't it just to work out it really is and I think publishers do you know they do kind of take a gamble on thinking this is a book that people will hopefully want to buy and will, will want to read and you know fortunately the chalk man did do well which was great and you know of course then that enables me to continue writing but with each book there's that you know you you I think you have to be realistic and not and I think that when you're a debut people are obviously saying nice things to you uh, you know and telling you your book's great and wonderful you're great and wonderful then maybe that's where it comes from being a bit older and having been having had all those rejections that you always have that kind of slightly you know well this this is great but you know, let's not get carried away. You know, we still, you know, the book has to sell, et cetera, et cetera. Always being prepared for the worst, I think. So I think it is quite good to help have that healthy degree of cynicism because then, you know, you you are prepared. If something goes well, it's great, but you've you've got that side of you that sort of, you know, well, you know, if it all goes goes wrong, I can always go and be a dog walker again. <laughs> and I still, I still feel like that now, even four books down, each book, you know, I feel it has got to be better than the last if, if I can possibly or, or at least different and interesting for the reader can I tell you this CJ I've spoken to many many authors and I've got to tell you none of the authors I've ever spoken to have been uber confident about their writing and about whether the next book gets published and I think yeah. I really feel for you as a job because you know we all feel in the workplace more and more that you get better at it and you get more confident and that's what happens but with writing you've got to find that with every single book don't you yeah you, you're never done you never go well that's it I'm, I've reached I've, I've reached done. my peak I'm brilliant <laughs> no you've got every book you're like you know I think you know this is why you know I don't know whether other authors are the same but I never reread my books once they're published because I know that I would like, oh god why didn't I change that bit why didn't I rewrite that paragraph you're constantly wanting to sort of you know make it better um, and yeah, that's where you go. And, and every time a book comes out, there's that nerve wracking thing of, oh, my God, are people going to buy it? Um, I would imagine that the second book would be really difficult because with the first one, you can kind of think there was hype and you fluked it and something happened and, you know, this agent knew that person and it came off. And then the readers loved it. You know, you got a great deal for it. And now you've got to do that again. Whoa. <laughs> you know, I was I was quite lucky with the, with the chalk mind because I'd because my thing is, because I suppose I was so used to rejection, I always started writing another book kind of straight away. I, and I always have another idea, which has been nice. Um, and I'd actually been working on another idea almost at the same time as The Chalkman at one point. So when I was asked for a second book, I had like about 50,000 words already written. And I felt quite committed to it. And, and to be fair, the pub, a lot of publishers had seen some of it already and, and had it in their heads that that was book two. So I kind of didn't have to sit down there with a blank page and go, oh my God, what do I do next? And I'm so grateful for that because if I had, I've tried, I think I would have tried to second guess what people wanted. I would have perhaps, you know, tried to write something too similar or, or gone the other way with the chalk man. And as it was, because I had written quite a lot of book two already and I was enthusiastic about it, I kind of just kind of naively just plowed on with it. I didn't really kind of overthink it. And I think that was a good thing because I, I didn't sort of get a block or get scared. I just, just carried on writing. <laughs> so I, I think that was really useful for, for book two, because, yeah, there, there is that weight of expect. When you're writing your first book, there is no expectation. 
no one's read anything. You can't disappoint anyone or let anyone down, really. But of course, when you have something published, then yeah, there's suddenly you have that, that weight of expectation. And that fear, I think all authors I speak to have that fear of letting people down, letting readers down, letting your publishers down who've you know invested their time and, and money in you. And, and, and you do feel that. But at the same point, you have to put that aside when you're writing, because you again, like I said, for you can't write to please other people. You have to write, you know, for yourself. Um, and try and put those considerations to one side. Otherwise, it would just mess with your head, I think. So are you a nine to fiver? I mean, what's your writing style, your work style? I tend to be a morning writer. I, I tend to sort of lose steam a bit in the afternoon. So generally, I'll try and, you know, it's a little bit up in the air at the moment because of the whole homeschooling thing and various other stuff going on. But yeah, I'll normally try and get it, get to my desk if I can first thing in the morning and do as much work in the morning as I can. After lunch, I tend to find I need to break sort of at lunchtime and then you know, go and do something else like walk the dog or whatever. And then, of course, when we were in our normal routine of school, by the time that was all done, it'd be time to pick up Betty from school and then I'm going to lose the rest of the day. And I, I sometimes, you know, I, I faff around a little bit in the evening on it, but I don't do anything hugely constructive. And I'm not a big night owl. And occasionally with editing, I've had to sit up late and do stuff. But normally I like to do stuff in the morning. I think they're best times to work, don't they? And I'm definitely a morning person. I'd rather be up at five and stay up till two or three, you know? That's me all over. If I don't do anything um, in the morning, that's pretty much it, you know? You're not going to yeah. get anything. I see people going to exercise classes at 7pm and I think, oh, never. No, that, I, could, I, say, I like to run, actually, so every other morning I go for a run as well. And, and I see people running in the evening. I'm like, God, no way. No, I'm sat down with a glass of wine by that point. I like to go yeah. do it first thing. <laughs> Where do they get get the energy from? (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your new book. Let's uh, give uh, our listeners a bit of a taste. It's called The Burning Girls. As we said, Jane had to leave it in the car. Um, (laughs) She couldn't go to bed with it in the same house. Talk to me about (laughs) where the idea came from and how you came uh, to writing it. So The Burning Girls is, it's kind of, I mean, I I think of it as sort of like it's a mystery, but it is also, it's, it's kind of like there's got a fair dose of, I would say, sort of folk horror in it, really. It's, it's based in this small little village in the south of the UK called Chapelcroft, which has rather a dark and macabre history because 500 years ago, eight martyrs, Protestant martyrs, were burnt at the stake during the reign of Mary I, uh, nicknamed Bloody Mary, for her purge of the Protestants. Um, and, and that's actually based upon sort of true facts in the, in the area. But in this little village, they, they commemorate these, the, the burning of these martyrs and two young girls who were killed by burning these little twig dolls every year on the anniversary and the twig dolls are called burning girls but this village has sort of a a more recent history that's dark as well because 30 years ago two teenage girls disappeared without a trace and far more recently the vicar of the parish committed suicide Um, so sort of into this village and and because of that comes reverend jack brooks and daughter flo to take over the small chapel um, in the village Uh, but very quickly they find themselves drawn into the village's dark past. Jack's left this old exorcism kit with a rather sort of sinister biblical quote about uncovering secrets. And then daughter Flo starts to think she sees apparitions of these burning girls who are supposed to haunt the chapel. It becomes apparent that the this history of these burning girls and the disappearance of the two teenage girls 30 years ago and the vicar's apparent suicide are all connected. And, and Jack and Flo find themselves drawn into this mystery of what's going on in this strange little village. And it was inspired, actually, by the little village where we live. <laughs> because, I thought you might say that. <laughs> yeah, when we came to view the house where we now live, when we drove into the village on the outskirts, um, up a small hill, there's this tiny little chapel. 
Um, and it's it's very untraditional of English chapels because it's kind of like small and white and square and it looks very American Gothic, bizarrely. So very out of place for the area. But something about it, as soon as we drove past, sort of, just, it, I saw it and went, oh, that place just looks really creepy. There's just something creepy about that little chapel and the higgledy-piggledy graveyard. And it has this monument to these so the martyrs, there's, there was a few martyrs from this area that were burnt at the stake in the graveyard. And so that was sort of, I thought, I have to write about this little chapel. And then I started researching the history of the area because the whole history of the burning martyrs is based upon a true history. In the town just up the road called Lewis, 17 martyrs were burnt at the stake in Lewis during um, the purge of the Protestants. Um, 10 on one night, which was like the largest human bonfire that you know, the country had ever seen. And they are commemorated every year. There's bonfire societies in all the little villages and they all have torch-like processions um, on November the 5th um, with 17 burning crosses to commemorate the burnt martyrs. So the bonfire societies and these torch-lit processions are a huge thing in the area. And something about it is obviously quite, he is a very wicker man as well. So as soon as I sort of researched this history, I thought it made a great kind of backdrop, backstory for the book particularly because it has that Wicker Man-esque type of folk horror feel to it all. And it just seemed to play in really well to this sort of the whole story. So, so yeah, so I had a lot of fun with that. As I say, I changed the procession to the, you know, the twig girls that they burn and so on. But it was, it was just lovely to have this sort of basis in, in sort of real history that, that made this nice macabre backstory to the book. Yeah, well, it's a really well-written book as well. Um, and you can see yeah. you've done the research. The book is called The Burning Girls. CJ, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.